This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there, there's a pass in here. You can in here and just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the execution, it had an impression on them that maybe was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it did have an impression on them, I'm sure. They would let me out until I get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to them. That was one of, the, one of the problems we ran into, is you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking and joking and drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to... to get under your skin some way or or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated and work there. My name's Anthony. I'm talking to Sky down in Texas. How's it going, Sky? It's good. It's summer, um, which I hate. It's May 15th, and I am in my closet sweating, and we have just started, so... I I would say one day I'll stop talking about how hot it is, but it's very unlikely. <laughs> I will not. I do not like the heat. So was it like a hundred degrees this last week there? Um, it was pretty close. Today I think is supposed to be a high of ninety eight. Um, it's supposed to be a high of ninety seven, ninety eight. I think for the next week it is going to drop mm. down to eighty next week. Wow! But <laughs> a real break for us. <laughs> and meanwhile, in Boise, uh, this last Monday it snowed, and then it kind of rained throughout the week, and now it's like this perfect, beautiful 70-degree spring day. Ugh, I love be, it. So must we, be nice to have, like, seasons besides summer and then <laughs> kind of winter, but not really. <laughs> it is so delightful. <laughs> I will, so, I will I'm t- like. The weather has got me in such a good mood. So. I, I will tell you, see, opposite, I'm in a real bad mood. But I <laughs> I booked my Airbnb to do my research in Sun Valley, and I will be there for the <gasps> fall. And I am, I cannot tell you how excited I am to be back in Idaho for my first fall in three years. And fall is my favorite season. I have missed it so much. I'm so yeah. excited. I actually oh. might cry right now thinking about it. Oh, man, you just have to survive the next brutal few months, right? I know. It's the only summer that I'll have spent, and I just, and I have to move, my lease ends, like, August 6th, and I'm just like, I'm really moving out of Dallas, Texas, um, in the middle (laughs) of, like, the end of July, early August. Like, I'm going to want to die. (laughs) It's fine. Everything's fine. Hang in there, Sky. (laughs) You've got this. Well... At least I'm not uh, getting in trouble and going to prison, so I guess things could be a lot worse. So should we maybe talk about some people who did get in trouble and were in prison? I think that's what everybody here is here to listen for. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> My transitions are insane. Hey, it's just it's just heat stroke. Yeah. It's fine. I'm just about to pass out in my closet. All right. Um, yeah. yeah. Today's going to be another long episode. We're talking about Ada County. 
which of course is where the prison is located. It's where Boise is located. And so I think uh, we're going to have a, a really interesting episode. Today's first sources for our first two subjects, Al Priest and John Stuart Black, were newspapers.com, which have the Idaho World and the Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman, and an entry about Old's Ferry on historichoodriver.com. As is usual with pretty much all the inmates that we've covered, very little is known about the early life of either Al Priest or John Stuart Black. Because they both had incredibly common names and we don't know their birth years, we could not find anything definitive about them prior to the crime they committed in Idaho, so I think we'll jump right to that. In October 1871, Al Priest and John Black robbed a stagecoach traveling between Umatilla, Oregon, and Boise, just outside of Olds Ferry near Weezer, Idaho. The two of them waited on the side of the road in the sagebrush until the stage came up, when one of them jumped out, quote, causing the horses to shy and the driver to sing out, What are you doing? We want Wells Fargo's treasure box, he replied, end quote. The driver asked one of the stagecoach's passengers, J.R.V. Witt, a merchant from Placerville, who said that they should just let them have it. Witt asked a question to the robber on the road. We don't know what the full question is because of the way the newspaper was scanned into the online database. It was uh, obscured. I couldn't see what the, the question was. And suddenly, the other robber stood up in the sagebrush, pointing a shotgun at Witt and the driver. The second man motioned with the gun that he wanted the box thrown out into the road. The two robbers asked how many passengers were on board. The passengers answered three. Quote, have you any Jews along? End quote, they then asked. When they were told no, they told the driver to drive on. What we see here, unfortunately, is an instance of stereotyping against Jews and perhaps a bit of anti-Semitism. Quote, they seem to have taken for granted that, not being Jews, none of the passengers had money, or they hold it no sin to rob Wells Fargo Company and Jews. End quote. The two of them made no effort to rob anybody or anything else from the stage. Quote, the last seen or heard of the duo, they were smashing the treasure box by the road, end quote. Sheriff Bryan of Ada County began to search for the robbers as soon as the stagecoach arrived in Boise with the news. Within a week, Bryan arrested Al and John, and they were committed to jail on a $2,000 bond each. They sat in jail for over two months until December 19th, 1871, when they were found guilty of robbery and sentenced to 15 years at the penitentiary. Judge Hollister, throughout the sentencing, emphasized the seriousness of their crime and expressed, quote, the hope, whoever may be governor, that no executive clemency will be interposed in their favor, but that they may serve out their full term, end quote. Judge Hollister claimed he had seen letters which convinced him that Al and John had collaborated with others for, quote, lawless purposes, end quote. He also claimed that both had made threats of violence towards officers, quote, so soon as they regained their liberty, end quote. They were housed in the Idaho City Territorial Prison. Two months prior to moving to the Territorial Prison in Boise, both Al and John were active participants in a prison outbreak. Though we covered this prison break in the first episode of this season, here's a reminder. On the evening of February 16, 1872, the prisoners of the Idaho City Territorial Prison were locked up with only one jailer, McCarty, on duty, while the other jailer, Tom Smith, was on some errands in town. One of the convicts, an unnamed Owyhee man who was considered a trustee, was given the job of locking up the other prisoners. He put them all in one cell, leaving it unlocked. Quote, 
After getting a good ready on, seven of the prisoners made a dash for the gate leading to the yard, which they succeeded in forcing, though McCarty and a prisoner named Dennis Crowley made strenuous efforts to defeat their purpose, end quote. The escaping prisoners cut off their iron shackles, took blankets, two days' worth of food, and fled. The Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman reported that a Chinese inmate was unable to get his shackles off and, while fleeing, met another Chinese acquaintance who recognized him as a prisoner and alerted authorities in town. Both John Black and Al Priest were among the inmates at large, along with inmates Cook, French, and the unnamed Owyhee trustee prisoner. The newspapers believed that they would be, quote, recaptured as soon as their grub gives out, as the snow is too deep to allow for their striking across the mountains, end quote. Even the Daily Appeal, a newspaper from Carson City, Nevada, reported on John and Al's escape, saying there was, quote, a fair prospect of their being recaptured, end quote. By the time the Daily Appeal had published their prediction, both Al and John, along with Cook and French, had in fact already been captured for nearly a week. <laughs> Which is proof of just how slow news was circulated 150 years ago. It's, it was so funny for me to read these two articles juxtaposed next to one another where they had been captured seven days before, and <laughs> in Nevada they were like, Hope, I think there's a good chance that they get captured. And I was like, oh yeah, they don't live on a 24-hour news cycle, and they don't have <laughs> this technology that just uh. constantly is feeding them news, which honestly seems, right now I think that's how I would prefer to get my news. But It's so excessive sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. According to the Tri-Weekly Statesman, Al Priest, Cook, and French were walking along the road near Thorn Creek Butte, less than 10 miles outside of Idaho City, when Jimmy McPhailin, a driver of the Idaho and Boise City stagecoach, passed them. Believing they may have been the escaped prisoners, he stopped at a place called Thorn Creek House, where he alerted men named Agnew and Call. The three of them hid behind a corner of the house with an old shotgun and six shooters, waiting for Al, French, and Cook to come along. As they came down the road, McPhelan, Agnew, and Call rushed out with their weapons and told them to put their hands up. They tied the escapees up and sent word to Sheriff McClintock. When McClintock reached the Thorn House, Agnew, quote, informed him that some man was stopping at a cabin on the creek below his house, end quote. Down in the cabin, they found Black lying on a bed, quote, perfectly helpless with his feet badly frozen, end quote. All four escaped prisoners were escorted back to the jail in Idaho City. Quote, The boys say they had a pretty rough time during their sojourn in the mountains. Priest says they lived on snow pudding most of the time. It is thought that Black will have to have his feet amputated. Certainly, the way of the transgressor is hard. End quote. I just want to oh, know what God. snow pudding is. <laughs> I, think, I think it's just uh, pine needles and, and snow. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> Ooh, piney snow cone. My favorite. <laughs> in an article published in the Tri-Weekly Statesman, immediately underneath the article about the recapture of the prisoners, some readers believe that the prisoners tried to escape because the newspaper had recently published an article about how they were going to transfer the prisoners to the new penitentiary soon, quote, where there would be no possibility of escape, end quote. The newspaper replied, perhaps a bit tongue-in-cheek, quote, This may be so, but we think not. The more probable reason is they wanted to come to Boise, and fearing no orders would be made for that purpose, they concluded to come on their own hook, and starting away in the night, they took the wrong road or have got lost in Morris Creek Canyon, end quote. The newspaper further reported that all but one of the seven escaped inmates had been returned. And it doesn't seem that John's feet were amputated. 
and both Al and John were successfully transferred to the new territorial penitentiary. Neither one of them wanted to be held in this prison for long, however. As we know, on April 25, 1872, two months after their escape attempt from the Idaho City Prison and less than a month after they were moved to the territorial prison in Boise, Al Priest and Ah Hood from the Boise County episode both escaped from the penitentiary. Ahud was working in the kitchen, and the rest of the inmates were working in a ditch outside of the prison walls, while Al was picking up stones and cleaning up the garden behind the prison with shackles on his leg. Al asked Mr. Wolf, who was guarding him, if he could go get a drink of water inside the prison, and he was given permission. Once inside, he walked right past the water pump to the end of the hall, and, seeing that there was about a two-foot gap between the bars and the top of the window, climbed the grate and escaped. It was assumed that he found a key and unlocked his shackles before escaping. Ahud followed suit. Seeing Al escape into the Boise foothills, the guards rushed the other inmates back to their cells and took off after Al. The newspapers were skeptical if Al or Ahud would be found. The Idaho World reported that Al Priest had said that he would not be kept in the penitentiary in Boise for more than 40 days. He escaped after 35. Al managed to remain outside the walls for nearly a month. Two days after his escape, Joseph Pinkham, the U.S. Marshal of the Idaho Territory, offered a $100... Nearly $2,500 in 2021. ...reward for the capture of Al Priest. These advertisements would remain in the Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman for a month and a half, even after newspapers reported that Al had met his end, which was reported by the Idaho World on May 16th, 1872, and the Tri-Weekly Statesman on May 25th. Soon after his escape, according to the Statesman, there was some evidence that someone had helped Al before he left Boise, as he had a supply of tea, sugar, and fruit with him. He stole two horses to carry his provisions and travel as fast as he could, usually traveling at night, though he was sighted by others several times. At Canyon Creek near Mountain Home, he stole a wagon and blacksmith tools to fix his horse's shoes. About 20 miles away at Rock Creek, a man named Reinerson, along with a companion, began tracking Al, though it is not clear why he took upon that duty for himself. They tracked Al to Basin Road, which forked and circled back to the Rock Creek stage station if the wrong fork was taken, and Al accidentally did just that. After spying him with a, quote, field glass, end quote, Reinerson realized that Al did not know he was being pursued, quote, jogging along to make good time and didn't look back, end quote. By moving as quickly as they could when Al couldn't see them, Reinerson and his companion managed to ride ahead of Al and waited for him. Al heard a rustling of the riders and looked around, quote, quicker than thought, his pursuer was dismounted with his Henry rifle leveled, and the crack of the gun was so quick that he was shot in the forehead over the right eye, just under the hat, the ball coming out the backside, through the hat just above the rim. Priest instantly fell from his horse, dead, end quote. Reinerson left the body and returned to Rock Creek. Jay Phillips from Boise arrived the next day after hearing the news, but he could not bury the body because he didn't have a shovel. A man the newspaper called John Boise came along the next day and buried Al Priest, though the newspaper article does not specify where. While Al had successfully escaped, though considering his death, to say he was successful is perhaps generous, John was stuck behind. Though he remained in the prison without breaking any rules for over three years, the Idaho World reported on May 21, 1874, that John had attempted an escape of his own. He was found in the process of digging a hole out of his cell, having already filed through his irons. 
Unlike his attempt in Idaho City, this time he was unable to get outside of the walls. Despite this escape attempt, however, seven months later, on December 17, 1874, the statesman reported that Governor T.W. Bennett had pardoned John Stuart Black. Quote, He is a young man, and his good conduct while in the penitentiary shows that he is a better man than he was supposed to be. He makes solemn promises of good behavior, and we believe he is sincere. He has gone to work for Ed Pinkham, and with a firm step and the sympathy of a generous public, we trust he will be a good citizen, end quote. In perhaps the biggest stroke of irony of all time, Ed Pinkham, John's new employer, according to the Idaho World, owned a stage line between Centerville, Placerville, and Pioneer City. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> And, of course, John was difficult to trace after his time in prison because of his common name. A John S. Black was named by the Boise Land Office in 1883 as filing for ownership for a piece of land he had resided on and cultivated through the Homestead Act of 1862. There's one other report of John S. Black in 1884 also related to land ownership. There are, of course, several newspaper reports of John Black throughout the years, but because of a lack of details of John Stuart Black, and because of the common name of John Black, we cannot definitively state that any of these are the same John Black as the one who served time in the Idaho Territorial Penitentiary in its first years. Interestingly, uh, the Idaho State Historical Society also manages the Rock Creek Station, and uh, the Stricker House. Um, so if next time you're passing through Twin Falls, stop into Hanson and check out the exhibit there. Um, it was such an important place to stop for travelers going along the Oregon Trail and settling, all the miners settling here in the West. They would stop there and, and get their new provisions while they before they headed out to their mining camps. So the next inmate we're going to look at is Charles the Duke, and the main source that we have for his story is actually the Arcadia Publishing Company's 2014 book, Nampa, by Larry Kane. So researching Charles the Duke's story was, as usual, difficult. <laughs> Anthony and Ian Pickens, who is one of the research assistants out there at the old penitentiary site, dug through countless records trying to find any information about him in newspapers and on ancestry. It wasn't until Jim Riley, our government records specialist at the Idaho State Archives, uncovered court transcripts, which finally gave us the name of the victim, Mr. Daniel Bacon, and a brief synopsis that led Anthony to find newspapers' accounts of the crime. According to the bill presented to the courts from the grand jury on October 10, 1871, Charles LeDuc decided to get some payback on Daniel Bacon. Now let's look at Mr. Bacon. He was born in Angelica, New York in 1822 and settled in Idaho in the 1860s. He owned a grain farm on the south side of the Boise River, about five miles southwest of downtown, quote, five miles above the Boise City Bridge, end quote. In 1868, the first bridge was built across the Boise River, replacing the ferry that originally transported citizens across the river at that spot. And I found the original 1868 toll rate, which was $2 to cross the bridge in a wagon with a, quote, span of animals, end quote, when it first opened. A dollar for a man and a horse and a quarter to cross on foot. Additional animals cost extra. This was later replaced by our iconic 1911 Ninth Street Bridge, which still stands today. So go check that out. 
Now, Mr. Bacon seemed to be a bit of an entrepreneur as well. In 1870, he began canvassing for subscribers in Boise to buy what was essentially a large encyclopedia called The Wonders of the World, edited by C.G. Rosenberg and containing over 500 pages and thousands of photos that detailed events in world history. This wouldn't be the only venture Daniel Bacon would get into in the world of printing. He was a successful local farmer across the bridge on the south side of town, but not necessarily well-liked. In an article printed just a month before Charles LeDuc's crime, Daniel wrote into the statesman complaining about the price of grain not being high enough, as the grain crop was poor that year and only yielded about half as much as previous years. He felt that the statesman was not helping farmers get a good price with the shorter supply. A journalist responded that if local farmers raised the price of grain, locals would get it from, you know, other nearby towns, and went as far as saying, quote, We learn, however, that he is one of the sort whose opinion is not respected, and therefore we pass it as the idle wind. The gratuitous injustice he seeks to do to the statesman shows that he is an ass, end quote. I believe this would spur uh, on his future endeavor in the newspaper world. <laughs> embarrassing for him right <laughs> <laughs> so back to the crime charles leduc worked for daniel bacon most likely during fall harvest and was owed one dollar and fifty cents for his time on october 10th 1871 around six o'clock in the evening charles grew impatient for payment he went to daniel's barn suited up one of daniel's horses with a saddle and bridle and headed south the sorrel mare was worth one hundred dollars the saddle was worth fifteen dollars and the bridle was worth two dollars and fifty cents Daniel Bacon discovered the horse missing from his home and followed the tracks. He alerted Deputy Sheriff Smith Barker, who followed the tracks. Charles was seen on the road with two boys heading toward the Snake River. It was noted in the Idaho Statesman that horse stealing was, quote, growing alarmingly frequent of late, end quote. At the end of the article, it stated, quote, The first thing somebody knows around here, some rogues will be found one of these bright mornings climbing a tree who are not looking for fruit, end quote. <laughs> the sheriff rode through the desert. His, quote, provisions gave out, and he was without blankets, but he stuck to the trail, staying out several nights without food and nothing to keep warm. Most men would have turned back, end quote. Which, let me just say, that is excessive to just try to get wages back. <laughs> uh -huh. But, I mean, I guess if you need money, you need money. The sheriff tracked Charles through brush and finally caught up to him in Duck Valley on the border of Idaho and Nevada. Quote, LeDuc, when arrested, acknowledged of taking the horse about six o'clock in the evening, that he intended traveling as far as Snake River, but concluded to keep on. LeDuc said he did not intend to steal the horse, but that Mr. Bacon owed him one dollar and a half and he had taken the horse for it, end quote. Deputy Sheriff Smith Barker brought Charles back to the Ada County Jail to await trial. His court documents included his aliases, John Doe, Richard Rowe, and James Coe, but noted that his real name was Charles LeDuc. <laughs> maybe he idea. just was like a poet. He was just trying to figure out how to rhyme everything. <laughs> he was found guilty December 8, 1871, and was sentenced to two years in the Idaho Territorial Prison on December 11th. 1871. I'm just imagining being the person who like writes all these aliases on the record and being like <laughs> John Doe, Richard, no oh, that's weird James, Co are you kidding me? Like <laughs> what? <laughs> that's so funny. Okay. Um, so Anthony was able to find another Charles LeDuc who was arrested and sentenced to two years in the Michigan State Penitentiary in 1876 but we cannot verify if that is definitively him or not. Mm. 
Now, you remember that scathing burn from the Idaho statesman on Daniel Bacon calling him an ass whose opinion was not respected and, quote, therefore we pass it as the idle wind, end quote. Well, it was his turn. In 1879, he actually began his own newspaper, The Republican. It was a 32-column weekly paper that the statesman described as, quote, filled with interesting reading matter and presents a neat appearance typographically, end quote. They noted that they did not receive a copy themselves, but borrowed one for the review. Two months later, a man from the Boise Democrat newspaper named Foster beat gray-haired 60-year-old Daniel Bacon, punching him to the ground and kicking him after Daniel printed a rebuke about a dirty and an obscene poem written in the Hawaii Avalanche newspaper. Foster was fined $25 for the beatdown. Daniel Bacon wouldn't he wouldn't stay in Boise for long. In 1883, the Oregon Short Line Railway tracks were laid through southern Idaho, and soon after, Nampa began to develop. Daniel actually moved to the newly developing town in 1888 and began his own newspaper, the Nampa Progress. The popularity of this newspaper actually spread and helped market Nampa to future developers. So he was pretty important to the development of Nampa yeah. with his newspaper. So yeah, it's kind of a cool, cool thing to tie Daniel Bacon all back in. <laughs> totally. That's pretty neat. That is Charles the Duke. The next inmate from Ada County we're going to talk about is Jacob S. Drake. And the sources that we have for him are, of course, newspapers.com, particularly the Idaho World and the Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman, and Ancestry.com records. He is one of the few yeah. that we have a lot of, not a lot, but some about his early life. Anything, yeah. 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 <laughs> Anything is a lot this season. <laughs> So, Jacob S. Drake was born in Milo, Maine, in either 1829 or 1830. He was the fourth of ten children and second son born to farmer Elias Drake and his wife Harriet. There is a possibility that he served for the Union in the Civil War, but the Civil War pension record listed on Ancestry for Jacob Drake stated that he served in the 179th Ohio Infantry, but died from disease in January 1865. So this is probably not him. Still, as a man in his 30s during the Civil War, it seems definitely possible that he served in the Civil War for some period of time, that we do not have definitive records to prove it. And I do think that that, I feel like kind of puts me back into perspective of like what time period that we're at. Uh, like, yeah. I think it's so easy for us to just be like, they were generally in the past. And, and most of the time, you know, we're not talking about people who were living in, in the, you know, 19th century, but that he very likely served in the Civil War, which is yeah crazy. In some capacity, yeah. for sure. Uh-huh. So I, I found that so interesting. Jacob was in Idaho by the late 1860s, and he appeared in the 1870 census in Ada County living with the Kingsbury... Listed incorrectly in the census as Kingsburg... ...family, headed by Thomas, an Irish immigrant farmer. Thomas was the patriarch of a family of eight children. His oldest was 17 years old, and his youngest was less than a year old in 1870. 
Jacob was working as a carpenter, though it is unclear if he was employed by Thomas or if he was working for an outside employer. Jacob Drake and the Kingsburys were living on or near Richard's Ranch on Dry Creek, and for those of you who are familiar with Boise, Dry Creek is just on the edge of town as you take Highway 55 toward Horseshoe Bend. There is a brand new Dry Creek Ranch neighborhood, which is probably very close to, if not the same place, that Jacob and Thomas were living and working in 1871. So cool. Yeah, I love tying cool. those things in. Yeah, I was so excited when I figured that out. Yeah. While it seems likely that Jacob and Thomas were friendly at some point, by late summer 1871, things between them had changed. According to the Idaho Dry Weekly Statesman from August 5, 1871, on the evening of August 1st, Thomas was at work in the fields with a threshing machine. Jacob stormed into the field and demanded that Thomas pay him for what he was owed, two or three hundred dollars, though it was unclear what he claimed he was owed money for. Thomas denied that he owed Jacob anything, saying he was responsible and paid Jacob whatever he was owed. Quote, some other words passed between the parties, end quote, and tensions continued to rise. Jacob then drew a revolver and Thomas took off running. Jacob fired three shots, hitting Thomas in the back with one bullet, which entered just below the kidneys and moved up through his right lung. Jacob oh. immediately fled and the doctor was called to attend to Thomas. While Dr. Smith extracted the ball from his chest, he remained in an unstable condition, so much so that when the newspaper reported the incident four days later, they believed, quote, the shooting scrape would probably result fatally, end quote. Jacob was arrested and brought back to town to stand before Justice Giddon on a charge of assault with intent to commit murder. His bond was set at $3,000, and the statesman reported that the case did not look good for him. Apparently, this incident was just one in a line of violent incidents that happened at Dry Creek. Quote, there is a single fatality connected with this little patch of land. Last year, Weathered killed Richards on the same ranch, and we are informed that altogether there have been nine other men shot on the same ranch, or right close by it. Instead of Dry Creek, it ought to be called Bloody Run, end quote. Jacob, wow. yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Have you seen either the American version or the British version of the show called Ghosts? Huh. So it's this it's this great show about basically the concept is that people end up moving into this house and, and through an accident, one of them ends up seeing ghosts of all of these people who it's like died on that site. And uh -huh. like there's like a, you know, the Brit I've only seen the British version, but there's so there's like, you know, a caveman sort of guy. There's like a World War Two general. There's you know, all of these like British aristocracy. And so I just was thinking. I, how interesting if we could have that on Dry Creek, like what kind of ghosts would we see? Yeah. So anyway. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, that was just, that was just a, again, my whole life just relates to like the TV shows or movies that I'm watching, so. <laughs> anyway. Oh my gosh. So Jacob was not arraigned before the courts until September 29th, nearly two months after being arrested when he pleaded not guilty. His trial began on October 3rd, 1871. Thomas Kingsbury not only survived the attack, but he served as a witness against Jacob, along with two other eyewitnesses, Henry Williams and V. Harbison. Jacob's defense attorneys, McBride and Henley, tried to submit a defense of insanity, quote, and the testimony on the point consisted of evidence of his irrational actions since last December, at which time the prisoner was run over by a wagon, both wheels passing over his head, and up oh. to the time of the shooting in July, end quote. It appears that this was his only point of defense. Which, oh, getting oh. run over 
with both wheels over your head. I just can't. It, it's a it's a miracle <sighs> that he lived, much less right was was in a position to do something like this. We've talked about it on the show previously of just people getting head trauma and mm-hmm. then like, yeah, oh, committing these heinous crimes. But the trial lasted the day of October fourth. And the jury deliberated for a short amount of time before returning a verdict of guilty, quote, accompanied by a recommendation to the mercy of the court, end quote. The day after the verdict, Jacob's counsel filed a motion for a new trial, which was overruled. Jacob S. Drake was sentenced to, quote, four years in the penitentiary for this territory at hard labor, end quote. Jacob seemed to behave well in prison, becoming a trustee within a year and a half. Despite this, however, incarceration seemed to deeply affect him. U.S. Marshal John Pinkham stated that Jacob had, quote, always been peaceful and well-disposed, and they have considered him perfectly trusty, although he has a weak mind, end quote. The Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman reported on March 22, 1873, that five days before, on the morning of March 17th, Jacob completed his trustee work in the kitchen and sat down and wrote a letter to Peter Sana, a Boise City merchant, before retiring to his cell, apparently his normal routine. What follows is a graphic discussion of how Jacob Drake attempted suicide. Listener discretion is advised for younger children or people sensitive to discussions of suicidal ideations. Please take care of yourselves while listening to the next three minutes of audio. Ten minutes later, a guard went back to Jacob's cell to check on him and, quote, found him lying on his bed with his throat cut and a stab in his breast, end quote. Jacob had attempted suicide. Using a small pocket knife he kept for cutting tobacco, he sliced a four to five inch, quote, ugly gash, end quote, on the right side of his neck. However, it was not deep enough to cut into his jugular vein. He had also stabbed himself in the chest just below the breastbone. The stab wound was two inches deep. The doctor believed he did not cut through any vital organs, and it was possible that he could recover, but it was a wait-and-see situation. From the Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman, quote, Drake's friends, particularly A.J. Wyatt of Dry Creek, have always contended that Drake was not of sound mind, and the circumstance is almost positive evidence that such is the case. At the trial, it was showed that a loaded wagon had run over his head sometime previous, and he had not appeared to be the same man since that time, end quote. Apparently, the letter he wrote to Peter Sauna was about a few dollars that Jacob owed, which Jacob had always fretted over, even though Peter had, quote, told him it was a matter of no consequence, end quote. Jacob actually survived his injuries, and it seems that his suicide attempt was proof to many that Jacob was suffering from mental illness of some kind of mental and psychiatric trauma after the wagon accident in the winter of 1870. On June 24, 1873, the Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman published the text of Jacob Drake's pardon, as written by the territorial governor T.W. Bennett, quote, And whereas, from petitions from many reliable persons and from other sources, I am convinced that the ends of justice would no longer be subserved by the further imprisonment of the said Jacob S. Drake, and that he is a proper subject for the exercise of the executive clemency imposed on me by law, end quote. Governor Bennett granted a full and free pardon, restoring his full citizenship rights on June 2, 1873. It is not entirely clear what Jacob did after his release from prison. It seems, however, that he lived a lonely bachelor life, as he never appeared in any records available on Ancestry.com after 1870, though it seems like he remained in Boise. 
In September 1877, the Idaho Semi-Weekly World published a single sentence, quote, Jacob F. Drake was killed by a wagon turning over him near Boise City last Tuesday, end quote. Sadly, the next day, the Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman reported, quote, Jacob T. Drake, who died last Thursday from injuries received by the accident of the same day, was buried at 10 o'clock Thursday. There were just enough persons present to perform the duties of internment, end quote. Even though both articles in the Tri-Weekly Statesman and the Idaho Semi-Weekly World misreported his middle initial and the day the accident happened, it seems that, based on a lack of both newspaper reports and ancestry records about him after 1877, this is our Jacob. He was not even 50 years old at the time of his death. Tragic. Well, and, and how sad that it was a wagon that, you know, mm-hmm. it was... It seems like, you know, it was a wagon accident that that was the, you know, a wagon was what made him a different person and that that's ultimately what killed him. This was I this when I found both the attempt on his own life uh, in in prison and this death, I was like, oh, this is this is a tough story. So kind of interesting, kind of hearkening back to the letter he wrote to Peter Sauna. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone living in Boise area might know that name. There's the Sauna building downtown, kind of just a little ways down from the Idenhaw on um, 9th and Main. And uh, it was constructed in the 1880s, that building was. But, um, you know, Peter was kind of a, a merchant. He sold like building materials mm-hmm. and tools and things like that. And then on the second floor of his building was actually an opera house, the Sauna Opera House, which mm. is pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, kind of a famous name here in Boise. All right, so we are going to move on to Michael Donahue. Sources for Michael are newspapers.com, particularly Idaho Tri Weekly Statesman articles and the Idaho World, um, Ancestry.com records, religious conflict and discrimination from the Library of Congress classroom materials on immigration and relocation in U.S. history, a blog article from Picturing United States History from City University of New York, and it's called Immigrant Stereotypes and American Racism by Kevin Kenny from Boston College. Mining sources, actually mentioned in earlier episodes, and the ISHS reference series articles, Boise River Placers, The Effect of Mining in the Economy of the Boise Region, and Lumber in the Boise Region. Much like the other men we have covered throughout the season, Michael Donahue's early life is difficult to find anything about. For Michael, however, we do have a little bit of information. He was born in Ireland in 1841. And that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's what we got. So the 1870 census places him at 29 years old at Granite Creek near Placerville in the Idaho Territory working as a, quote, mining laborer, end quote, making him a typical settler of the Idaho Territory in its earliest years. And this is all we know about his early life because an Ancestry.com search of his name, born in Ireland in the 1840s, turns up far more (laughs) results than you would expect. So... Like we have seen with other inmates before, there is a possibility he served for the Union Army during the Civil War, but the records that I found about this Michael Donahue serving in the Civil War lead back to a Michael Donahue who ended up in Massachusetts. So if our Michael served in the Civil War, we couldn't find records that clearly are him. And then at some point, I believe that Michael married a young woman named Mary, but I couldn't find any records to find who this Mary was or when they got married. 
1871, Michael was living in Ada County near the Payette River. And remember, Ada County was much bigger in the 1870s than it is now. Prior to October 1871, Michael had some trouble with one of his neighbors, Joseph Atkinson. According to the Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman, recounting the story over a year later, Michael and Joseph met near Joseph's house in an argument about, quote, some previous difficulty, end quote, ensued. Apparently, Michael had a double-barreled shotgun with him. As the tension escalated, Joseph became more and more concerned that Michael had purposefully brought the gun, quote, with intent to kill him, end quote. Joseph began grappling with Michael, trying to get the gun away from him, and in the melee, the gun went off, quote, shooting a rough-looking hole through Atkinson's hat, end quote. When the incident was over, quote, Donahue swore the hat had fallen off and was on the ground when the gun was discharged. Atkinson swore that the hat was on his head. Each laid the cause of the gun going off on the other, end quote. During the trial against Michael for assault and battery, the hat was shown as evidence. The hole was covered in powder burns, and the position of the hole on the rim of the hat seemed impossible to have happened without seriously injuring the person who was wearing it, perhaps proof that Joseph had not been wearing the hat after all. The jury deliberated for, quote, considerable time, end quote, and, despite the hat, returned a verdict of guilty, though they recommended mercy from the judge. When it came time to sentencing, Judge Hollister, quote, asked Donahue if he was an Irishman. Being answered in the affirmative, the judge told him he would sentence him for five years. The sentence was considered a severe one and had the appearance of prejudice against the defendant on account of his nativity, end quote. In the 19th century, anti-Irish prejudice was widespread throughout the United States. Centuries of religious tension between Protestants and Catholics in Ireland spilled into the United States with the surge of Irish immigrants in the 1800s. As Irish Protestants and Irish Catholics fought in the streets of American cities, anti-Irish and anti-Catholic sentiments created a new political party, the American Party, known in history as the Know-Nothing Party, which, quote, fought foreign influences and promoted traditional American ideals, end quote. They were called the Know-Nothings because, when asked about what their party stood for, they often reply, quote, I know nothing about it, end quote. Though the United States has never had an official national church, nearly all of the churches that first began in the country have been Protestant, making Catholicism a concern to many religious Americans, and Catholicism's deep association with the Irish only made it worse. Throughout the century, native-born white Americans believed that Irish immigrants were lazy drunks who thrived in poverty, lacked proper manners and discipline, and had a, quote, capacity for criminality and collective violence, end quote. There were also concerns about Irish immigrants taking jobs, as they were often willing to work low-wage jobs in poor working conditions in large cities, which, of course, were jobs that many white native-born Americans did not want. This is, according to the statesman, the prejudice that Michael suffered from, even in Idaho. And this kind of harkens back to that Thomas Donaldson quote asking about Irishmen and Chinese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and I should say, I wrote that they were often willing to work low-wage jobs. I should have said they were often forced to work these low-wage jobs, um, especially because most of these Irish immigrants lived in New York City, which uh, I guess I shouldn't say most of them, but several of them, and, and I think that's where a lot of this concern came from, were, were from these Irish immigrants who, who would take jobs, who were had to take jobs in uh, in factories. and But it's 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 really the same concerns over immigrants that we often see today and really have seen uh, throughout the country. And so it was it was really interesting to see that 
the judge straight up said, are you an Irishman? And he said, yes. And he said, then you're going to prison for five years. It's, it's something that we don't often think about now. I think when we think of, of racial and ethnic prejudice, obviously, it's, it's most often the people who look different than white Americans, but that the Irish really suffered from a lot of prejudice uh, in the 1800s. So anyway, so Michael was housed in the territorial prison in Idaho City. As we know from Al Priest's and John Black's story, several inmates orchestrated an escape from Idaho City in February 1872. Guard McCarty and Dennis Crowley of the Boise County episode tried to stop the escape from happening. Though the newspaper did not say that Michael helped McCarty and Dennis in their efforts, he, at the very least, refused to leave with the other inmates, likely trying to serve his time without any problems so that he could be released as soon as possible. The statesman reported that during his prison time, a petition circulated for his pardon, which was signed by the jury, quote, members of the bar generally, end quote, and several of the city's prominent citizens. Because of the petition and the circumstances behind Michael's crime, Governor T.W. Bennett pardoned Michael Donahue on November 6th, 1872. Quote, this was perfectly right, end quote, said the statesman. Quote, we are glad to see executive clemency exercised in this instance, end quote. Michael served less than a year of his five-year sentence. Just as with his early life, we have only a few details about what happened to him after his release from the penitentiary. In fact, the only time he appeared in the newspapers after 1872 was in February 1875, when he was listed in a summons in the Triweekly Statesman as the defendant in a divorce case from Mary. The fact that the summons appeared in the newspaper through March seems to indicate that Michael could not be found in town. Mary was bringing a suit of divorce, quote, demanding and praying for judgment against you. The relief is prayed for on the grounds of cruel treatment and willful desertion and failure to provide for her for more than one year last past, end quote. It seems that Michael never did respond to the summons, and in March, the case was dismissed. Understanding this, it is quite likely that Michael Donahue left Idaho and perhaps never came back. Wow, that's all 11, the first 11. We've covered all of them, Sky. Wow. We did it. We were not sure how this season was going to go because, as yeah. you all saw, it's very difficult to find even sometimes anything about their crimes. So, mm-hmm. the variety of like spellings for names mm-hmm. and just the uncertainty on on most everything, you know. And often they didn't even mention the name of the person. All you got was that like mm-hmm. robbery committed in this town at this time with a couple extra details. So mm-hmm. you know, man, we scoured newspapers and. It was fun, but I am ready to get back to (laughs) more certainties, or at least closer to. (laughs) I am with you. But before we do, should we uh, get into uh, one last history of of Ada County? Yeah, let's look at some mining and industrial history of Ada County. Mining was less prevalent in Ada County than in many of the counties in central and northern Idaho. But mining nevertheless influenced what happened there. Discoveries in the Boise Basin brought thousands of miners to the region starting in 1862. Further discoveries of quartz, silver, and gold in the Owyhee mining region continued to expand the population in the southwestern area of Idaho. Because Idaho's climate did not allow for year-round mining, placer minings in rivers happened swiftly, day and night, when the water had gone down enough for miners to ford into the water. As a result, Plastering in the basin around Boise continued for much longer than mining ordinarily would have, meaning that service communities like Boise and the towns around it, whose economy depended more on farming than mining, were supported much longer than they normally would have been as well. According to the ISHS reference series, 
the effect of mining in the economy of the Boise region, by 1864, quote, all of the easily irrigable land along the river had gone into agricultural production, end quote. That did not mean, however, that people did not try mining in Ada County. Though the Boise River is further south than the forks where miners up north were finding immense levels of success, it nevertheless contains small quantities of finer particles of gold. The area that is currently home of the Lucky Peak Dam was, quote, gaining recognition, end quote, by the summer of 1864, and some additional discoveries further north above Boise City followed in 1867. However, the Boise River was simply never productive for placer mining. Miners in South Boise and the Boise Basin tried stamp mining in 1866 and 1867, and stamp mining is a machine that has some arms connected to an axle, and it just pounds the rock down, and it processes and extracts metallic ores. But mining directly in and around Ada County still suffered compared to other places in the territory. But even if miners did not have great success in Ada County, lumbermen, by contrast, cleaned up, as it were. During the gold rush to the southern part of the territory in the 1860s, sawmills were often installed in mining towns in Boise and Ada counties, or sometimes close to mines. As the ISHS reference series Lumber in the Boise region put it, quote, mining, whether plass or load, required lumber right from the beginning. Mine timbers, necessary in places for tunnels and stopes, and lumber for mill building brought a substantial forest products demand after load mining diversified the local economy, end quote. Once railways became more commonplace in the region in the early to mid-1860s, commercial lumbering became possible, especially after Idaho's statehood. Much like the farming in and around Boise, the local lumber industry owed its very existence to mining. During the earliest mining years, transportation improvements made Boise a major stop for stage travelers, and rail service was essential to the continued growth of the mining industries around town. However, through most of the 1860s, Boise was, at best, a terminal for service to Salt Lake City or Denver. Even a steamboat was built in 1866 at Fort Boise, quote, to try to improve service to the Columbia, but that enterprise came a little too late and had too much of a fuel shortage problem to have any chance for success, end quote. In 1868, attempts to build a Snake River Valley rail line got underway, but the Panic of 1873, which lasted four years, dashed any lingering hopes of its completion. It would take another 10 years for the Oregon Short Line Railroad to extend into southern Idaho, but when rail service finally expanded, the Boise region was transformed. Farmers who had been largely dependent on mining for markets could now ship their crops to national outlets, while local mining markets also expanded. And everybody got potatoes. <laughs> Overall, Ada County was not a major mining county, but it nevertheless played a central role in the territory's reputation for mining and agricultural industries. Ada County, the state's most populous county and home to cities like Boise, Meridian, and Eagle, remains central to the state's economy, population, and government. We did it. Wow, Sky. Yeah, we did it. All right. Well, nicely done. Same to you. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. We will talk to you again next week. Do your own time. Do your own number. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.